invite you to turn with us in your Bibles at home. We're continuing our way through the book of Acts, chapter 20, verses 1 to 12 uh, this morning. I'm going to just read the text one more time, and then uh, we'll pray and we'll ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate the passage before us to give us understanding and to strengthen our faith. I'll pick it up in verse 1. After the uproar in Ephesus ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now, there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Tychicus, sitting in the window, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just ask that you would uh, bless your word this morning. We pray, Father, that as we look at this scripture this morning, Lord, we would be reminded and convicted of the importance of gathering for the sake of encouragement. And Lord, we pray that you would drive home into our hearts this morning that the greatest encouragement comes from your word as it is preached to us. Father, we pray you'd illuminate this text before us and highlight these truths this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, several years ago, I was at a preaching conference uh, in, in attending a few, with a few friends of mine, and uh, it was a preaching conference, but um, the pastor stood up, and essentially one of the, one of the conference speakers stood up, and he, he gave a message in which essentially uh, he said that preaching was not the primary way of making disciples. And he went ahead and he challenged us. He says, I want you guys right here, right now, on the spot to think of five sermons, just five sermons over the course of your life that have dramatically changed your walk with Jesus Christ. And I was a preacher at this time, full-time preaching. And as I sat there, I couldn't think of five sermons that changed my life. I could hardly remember last week's sermon. And so I was convicted. He says, basically, what we're doing is just gathering people together 
so that they can gradually grow into Christ, but it happens through the one-on-one discipleship within the fellowship of the church. Is that true? Now, I freely admit, in the moment, I couldn't think of five sermons off the top of my head that had really impacted me, but is his assertion true? Is it not the preaching of the Word of God? Is it the gathering of people together for mutual fellowship and one-on-one encouragement and one-on-one discipleship? Is that really how God grows us and sanctifies us and strengthens us in our faith? Does the Word not play a pivotal role? Over the years, one of the conclusions I've come to is that he was wrong. It is not only the fellowship of the people of the Lord gathered together. It is both the fellowship of the people of the Lord gathered together hearing the word of God preached. And that's really what this text is driving home for us this morning. In this particular passage, we're going to see that Paul's preaching goes so long into the night that obviously Eutychus is overcome by sleep. It's late. It's midnight. He's overcome. The sermon has gone on for hour after hour after hour after hour, and he falls asleep. He dies. He falls out of the window. He falls down from the third-story window. He hits the concrete, the pavement below, and his neck is broken, and he perishes. Paul comes down and performs a supernatural miracle, a miracle which could only have been performed in the power of the one true God. Eutychus is restored to life. You'd think that would be the end of the worship service. You'd think that that would be the fitting conclusion to their time together. And yet, they were not, in Paul's estimation, sufficiently encouraged. They were not yet sufficiently strengthened. And therefore, having performed an amazing miracle, Paul goes back to the greater miracle, the preaching of God's revelation to the Lord's people. What we're going to see today is that it is the gathering of the saints, but it is the gathering of the saints to hear God's word preached. I invite you to look with me here in verse 1. I'm going to look at the both ends of the passage to show you what this passage is really about, and then we'll begin to pick it apart. In verse 1, it says, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement. Now, just stop right there in verse 1, and then again in verse 2, this word encouragement has been repeated twice now. It says, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples in Ephesus. He's still in Ephesus. He has not departed Ephesus yet. And he encourages them. Then it says that he takes off. He says his farewells. He goes to Macedonia. That's what verse 1 says. And then verse 2 says, when he had gone through those regions of Macedonia, he was, it says, giving them much encouragement. Much encouragement. Most of your translations will say much encouragement. This is one of those rare moments where I just want to interject and say, if you're using the English Standard Version, there is a little bit that has been omitted for the sake of clarity, but which is clearly there in the Greek. It says he gave them much encouragement with many words. He, he preached at them. There was a lot of sermonizing. There was a lot of preaching of God's word that is going on here. And that's crucial. That is absolutely crucial to understanding this passage. For the longest time this last week, as I was looking at this particular text, I was struggling to understand 
what it was doing. I mean, we have this travel log. That's what you would call it in the first half of the passage where Paul is going from A to B to Z. He's running all over the place, doing all sorts of stuff with these guys that are, that are going with him. And then all of a sudden you have this account of Eutychus and, and him preaching this sermon late into the night and, until dawn the next morning in Troas. And I'm looking at these two passages side by side. I'm thinking they've got to be two separate passages. But then it became apparent to me as I continued to look at the Greek text that, in fact, these were connected by a single thought, encouragement through preaching. It's not there in the ESV. It is there in the Greek. It's not there in your English translations necessarily, but you absolutely do see it in the Greek. He says in verse 1, after encouraging them in Ephesus, where he has been for several years and has preached all kinds of sermons, he leaves and he goes through the rest of Macedonia. And even though it's not there in your English translation, it absolutely is there in the Greek. He encouraged all those people in the regions of Macedonia, all those churches there in the regions of Macedonia. He encouraged them with many words. You jump all the way down now to verse 12, and look what it says, very last verse of the passage, after he's healed Eutychus and continued to preach all the way till dawn, it says in verse 12, and they took the youth away alive, and they were, this is Paul, this is Luke's sort of rhetorical uh, statement, they were not a little, in your ESV translation, it's going to say they were not a little comforted, but the Greek word there is perikaleo. It's the same Greek word as what is found in verse 1 and verse 2. In verses 1 and 2, it's being used in a particular tense, encouragement. It's in the aorist. We come to the very end of the passage. It's used in the past tense or the imperfect tense for the, for the Greek nerds who are following along at home. It's in the imperfect tense. It says they were not a little Parakleo. So you got parakleo, parakleo, and parakleo. At the beginning of the passage, you have this statement, which for whatever reason is omitted from your ESV translation. He was encouraging them. They leave out for reasons I don't understand why the translators would make this choice. He encouraged them with many words. Then you have this whole story of Eutychus falling asleep and falling out of the window and dying, and Paul keeps preaching. Do you think he's using many words? I can honestly say, for all of the times I've been criticized for being a long-winded preacher, you and I both know I've never taken you till dawn the next day. I've never done it. It's not to say that I never will, okay? Just you keep that in the back of your mind as you're following along at home. Don't hit that pause button. We're going to be here a while, okay? Now, Paul is preaching. He's preaching all the way till dawn the next morning. He's using a lot of words in his sermon. It's a worship service. It's a gathering. The text also makes that clear. So if you look at verse 7, it says, On the first day of the week, in verse 7, on the first day of the week, what day is that? We tend to think it's Monday, but it is not Monday. It is actually Sunday, the first day of the week, the day that the Lord came out of the ground, was Sunday. They're together on a Sunday. And there's this other little expression here that lets you know this is a worship service. It says, on the first day of the week or on Sunday, when we were gathered together, Greek word there is ekklesia, the church was assembled, also translated elsewhere in the New Testament as church or assembly, when we were gathered together on the first day of the week to break bread. Now, it could be that they're referencing the meal that they would share together in the first century. It could be that he's just talking about your typical potluck dinner. But 
we have strong reason to believe from a lot of other passages that this actually is, this breaking of bread, is actually a reference to communion. So this is a worship service. And Paul preaches so long and so hard, Eutychus, poor Eutychus, falls asleep and dies. And the text concludes, he preached till dawn, the kid lived, and the church was The text translated says comforted, but you need to understand it's encouraged or strengthened. We have what the academics in the ivory tower would call an inclusio. We understand it as bookends, okay? It's bookends. That is, there's something that marks the beginning of a particular passage, and then there's something that marks the end of a particular passage, the same way that you'd have bookends that hold books on a shelf. You got one on either end. Here in this particular passage, Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is sharing something with us, and he intends for us to pick up on its subtleties through the use of what is called an inclusio, that is, words that are stated at the beginning, which are clearly repeated at the end, to show you that there's a connection all throughout this passage, that these things are related. The first part says he encouraged them. Verse 1, he encouraged the brothers in Ephesus. Verse 2, when he had gone through Macedonia, those regions, and had given them much encouragement with many words, then he goes on to Troas. He preaches this sermon, and at the end of the sermon, where he preaches all the way till dawn, they are encouraged. So all of this comes together. The idea that Luke wants to drive home for us is that it is through this gathering, this worship service, and the preaching of God's word with many words that the church was encouraged. What, now, what exactly does that mean, to be encouraged? You know, I, uh, I grew up in a home with four other boys, four brothers, all of them older than me. And I'd come home from school sometimes down or discouraged because somebody picked on me at school or perhaps I didn't make a very good grade on my spelling test. And I'd come home, I'd be like, oh, mom is going to kill me when she sees my grade on my spelling test. And do you know what my brothers would do to encourage me? They'd say, shut up and take it like a man. And they'd smack me upside the head. That was their idea of encouragement. Do you suppose I felt encouraged? No, you have failed, and you are failing even more because you're not acting like the man you should be acting like. It was not encouraging. And very oftentimes I find that when Christians go to encourage each other, our idea of encouragement is, look, whatever you think the problem is, it's not a problem. Just stop it. Be encouraged. And, and we're not. We're not really encouraged. And even the people who are saying those things, they know deep in their soul that like, you're, you don't see it the way this guy sees it. It's not the way he thinks it is. You don't really know what to say. You just, eh, stop it. Be encouraged. And we try to just sort of encourage each other through nothing more than the simple expression, stop it and be encouraged. But what does this word actually mean, to encourage? What, what are we actually doing when we do this thing called encouragement? I consulted, with, um, I consulted with Webster's Dictionary to look up the actual definition of encouragement. Webster's says that the idea behind encourage is to give someone confidence or hope through, interestingly enough, the declaration of truth using words in order to express that truth. In other words, encouragement is vocal. It is rooted in truth. 
and you're trying to persuade someone of something that is, that is true. And I thought that was a really good definition. I really did. I really did. You know, the master escape artist, Harry Houdini, at the turn of the, uh, the 1900s, at the turn of the century, he became world famous for being able to break out of safes, being able to break out of handcuffs, bring, being able to get out of all manner of things. And years later, after his uh, magic act routine had come to an end, years later, after he had retired, they were talking to uh, Harry Houdini, and they were asking him, what, what does it take to be, uh, to be a good magician? And he said, not much. His words, direct quote, it's really easy to fool the eyes. He says, the easiest thing in the world is to trick the eyes. People, he says, have a natural expectation. And all you need to do is draw their attention to that thing which they are naturally looking for, all the while performing your deception elsewhere. Isn't that interesting? We have a natural expectation and our focus and our gaze tends to zero in on that. And it is easy to be tricked into looking for whatever it is we naturally expect. Encouragement, then, is where we have to remind each other that what we can see with our eyes, what we're able to clearly see in the world around us, is not the final reality It is not the ultimate reality. It is not the conclusion of the matter. And we have to be persuaded using words not to trust in what our eyes can see more than what the Word of God tells us is true. That's encouragement. The question is, do we see examples of this in the Old Testament? Yes, we do. I want to give you guys a couple of passages this morning in the Old Testament to show you how this is used. The first one comes from 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 22 to 25. It should be up on the screen behind me. I'm not sure if it is. or There it is. Yep. So just listen. The messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. David has just uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba. And, of course, this is a huge problem. She turns up pregnant. He sends Uriah, her husband, into battle. He instructs Joab, the general of the army, to uh, arrange the combat in such a way that Uriah will surely be killed. Of course, it goes exactly as planned, unbeknownst to Joab that this is David's strategy. Uriah is killed, and now Joab is discouraged. The messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another, Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. And it says, encourage him. Encourage him. David is telling Joab, don't allow the death of Uriah to be of great concern to you. He makes the statement, uh, the sword just randomly devours who it devours. First this guy and then the next guy. He's trying to comfort Joab, you might say, by reassuring him 
that Uriah's death is not ultimately his fault. He's, after all, just been following the strategy which King David instructed him to follow. And then he says to his servant, tell him that, remind him of that, and encourage him. So the servant is going to use words to persuade Joab of something that is true, contrary to Joab's own perception and his own expectation of the situation. He thinks they ought to be victorious. Uriah is dead. David says, be encouraged. This is what happens sometimes. Give you another passage, Second Chronicles. King Hezekiah is trying to encourage his people. The Assyrians are about to invade. Shennacherib is on the march. And so we find in Second Chronicles chapter 32, verses 2 to 8, when Hezekiah saw that Shennacherib had come and intended to fight against Jerusalem, he planned with his officers and his mighty men to stop the water of the springs that were outside the city, and they helped him. A great many people were gathered, and they stooped, and they stooped, they stopped. Beg your pardon, that's a typo on my page here. They stopped all the springs and the brook that flowed through the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? He set to work resolutely and built up all the wall that was broken down, and he raised the towers upon it, and outside it he built another wall, and he strengthened the millow in the city of David. He also made weapons and shields in abundance, and he set combat commanders over the people and gathered them together to him in the square at the gate of the city, and he spoke, notice this, he spoke encouragingly to them, saying, Quote, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria. Now you say, how is that encouraging? And he's saying, look, these guys are a massive army. They're way more than we are. We're all going to die if it's just up to us. Oh, I don't feel very encouraged. Look at what he says next. He says, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. Is that really true? Look at what he says in verse 8. With him is an arm of flesh... But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And it says the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So we find in the scriptures, we find in the scriptures that when we want to encourage someone, we're going to have to use words, we're going to have to talk to them, but it's not simply a matter of just saying, look, just be encouraged, man, just, just be encouraged. That's not what we're doing here. What we're doing is we're trying to help them to understand what is true, what is actually real. They see a certain situation, they're looking at it a certain way, and they understand it to be some, a certain way that it is not an actual fact. And so our job when we encourage people is to help them to see something that they can only see if they're listening to someone else, and the one that they need to be listening to above all others is God in his word. And that's what's happening here in the New Testament. That's what Paul is trying to do. He is being chased from one place to the next. The governing authorities are out to get him. His own fellow Jews, his own flesh and blood, his own kinsmen are out to murder him. And he is out preaching the gospel. And everywhere he goes, they're either trying to throw him in jail, they're trying to have him killed, they've, they've locked him in jail once already, they have already stoned him on several occasions. We don't know all the things that he's gone through. We know he's been through quite a bit, multiple death, te- death attempts, multiple attempts to kill him. And he's gone through it all, and they're still after him. And Paul understands understands that he has a job to do, and that job is to strengthen God's church, to encourage 
God's church. Or another way to translate this word parakleo is to comfort. All three are the same. There are slightly different nuances, but they all mean the same thing. They're all taken from the same Greek word. In the first instance, to comfort. If you do something and the world pounds you for it, says you're wrong for doing this, there's a natural tendency for you to question. Say, am I right to do this? Am I doing the right thing? Everybody tells me I'm doing the wrong thing. Again, you're looking at your circumstances. You're looking at what the world is saying to you. And they're saying, don't do this. Now, you've done it, obviously, and that's why they're pounding you for it. And so along comes someone to encourage you. Or, as it's also translated here in our passage, along comes someone to comfort you. It's the same word, but what this individual is saying is, listen, don't listen to what other people are saying. Just keep doing what you're doing because what you're doing is honoring the Lord. Now, in a, in a, in a sense, that is comforting. It is comforting, but it's also encouraging. Through comfort, you are encouraging someone to continue doing what they're doing. And the word can also be translated encourage. To encourage someone, literally, to put courage into them, to give them the bravery, to give them the courage to continue to face what seems to be a difficult or even an impossible situation, and yet to do so believing that God is in it, that God is with them, and that this is what God would have them to do, to give them the courage to do what they know is the right thing to do. And then the last way that this word can sometimes be translated, to strengthen. In the same way that I once upon a time found my truck stalled on the side of the road and I needed to get out of traffic and so I got out of my pickup truck and I was trying to push it. I was on a slight uphill incline and I didn't want it to roll backwards into traffic. I'm trying to push it off into the ditch and I couldn't move it. I couldn't move it. And a couple of guys jumped out of their vehicles and they came and they threw their shoulder into the tailgate with me and together three or four of us were able to push this thing off the side of the road. I knew what I needed to do. I understood the task that needed to be accomplished, yet I lacked the strength to do it. And so God brought other people to give me the strength that I needed to succeed. All three of these understandings are inherent here in the passage before us. Let's walk through it. Paul says in verse 3 that he spent three months, Luke says that he spent three months and when a, he's, he's in Macedonia, and he spends three months there encouraging with many words. And when he encouraged for many words, there was a plot made against him by the Jews. Nothing new happens all the time for Paul. And they made this plot against him as he was about to set sail for Syria. He's, he's getting ready to cross over. He's going to head over to Troas. But they come. They're going to plot against him as he's getting ready to sail. And so he decides that's a great moment to go encourage some other people. He doesn't make the journey. He doesn't get on that boat. He goes back through Macedonia. So it says he decided to return through Macedonia. Now, I want to draw your attention here to these guys. Verse 4 and following. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asiarchs, Tychicus and Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. If you look at these guys who are with him, he's got about six guys there, including Luke. They're getting ready to go throughout all these different regions of Macedonia. And one of the things that you realize is if you go back and you trace where Paul planted churches in Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, these guys that are traveling with him 
come from each of these places where they're about to go to. In other words, Paul is going to go and he's going to preach with many words, and he's going to encourage them with many words, with guys that that church congregation already knows and already trusts. He's had a death threat made against him. They're trying to kill him. And he determines in that moment that the thing he really needs to do is to go back to all of the churches and to strengthen them by preaching with many words. And Luke mentions, the Spirit mentions, that he takes all of these guys with him. That tells us something important. When it comes to encouraging each other, we are more easily persuaded of the truth. We are more easily encouraged. We are more easily comforted, more easily strengthened when those words come from somebody that we already know and trust. That's crucial. When, Paul, when Luke mentions that Paul is going through all of these regions and he mentions that the guys he's taking with him happen to be guys that come from all of these regions, it's not just Paul showing up saying, hey, remember me? I was here last year. They probably do remember him, absolutely. But Paul is showing up to preach, to encourage them, and he's bringing with him all these other guys that they already know, that they grew up with, that they went to school with, that they worked with. These are guys that are known, that are from those communities. They have a reputation. They're understood to be honorable, trustworthy men. They trust these guys. And so when Paul shows up, yes, he is preaching the word. He is encouraging people with the truth, but he's also relying upon people they already know and they already trust to say, amen, that's right, that's correct, we agree. Truth is paramount. We are to be encouraged by Scripture. Having friends around us whom we know and trust is very helpful. Understand that. Luke wouldn't have put this in here if we didn't need to know it. He wants us to see clearly that when Paul establishes a new church, baby Christians, they're likely to see Paul, their hero, the guy that preached the gospel to them, getting hammered. And they'll be dismayed by that. They'll be saddened by that. But then these guys that they know and they trust come along and say, don't be saddened by that. Don't be dismayed by that. We're still honoring the Lord. We benefit most from the word And a trusted friend to share that word with us is also very, very good. The fellowship as well as the scripture. Now, we see this in the scriptures. Paul, writing in uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 8 to 12, makes this really interesting statement. Paul had longed for a long time, a long time to go to Rome. A church was planted there by somebody else, probably Peter, We don't know for sure. And Paul wants to go there, and he wants to visit with them and worship with them and share God's word with them. Circumstances intervened. I mean, he's constantly on the the run for his life, so he wasn't able to go. At some point, he writes this letter. And in chapter 1, verses 8 to 12, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because of your faith, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. 
For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spirit, notice this, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, That is, that we may be, look at this, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. What an incredible statement. The Apostle Paul, dauntless, intrepid, ferocious, nothing scares this guy. He gets beaten down and he flies right back into harm's way. He keeps preaching God's word. This guy says, I have always wanted to come to your church. I've always wanted to come and gather together with you, brothers and sisters in Rome, that I would be encouraged by your faith. This man whom we look at and we see all these things he's done, it seems like what? There could be nothing that gets this man down. And yet we know that's not true. He writes about it in 2 Corinthians. And here he says to the church of Rome, I want to come and be with you so that I will be strengthened fellowshipping with you. And of course, he wants to share his gift in return. These two coming together and encouraging each other. It's clear in the scriptures. And that's why he goes back through these regions, taking trusted brothers. He is going to be encouraged by them. They're going to be encouraged by those churches. But they also want to encourage and bless those churches. Again, everyone reminding everyone not to look at their present circumstances where the world is against them, but to continue to lift their eyes up to heaven and to say, this is not real down here. This is real God, and he actually is reigning down here, even though we can't see it with our eyes just yet. We know it's true. We're going to encourage each other to remember that and to believe that. That's what's going on here in this particular passage. That's what Paul is driving at. So they encourage everybody in Macedonia, and eventually the time comes for them to head across the Aegean Sea to Troas, which they do, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together, verse 7, to break bread, Paul talked with them. Now, Luke tells you his plan is to leave the next day. He understands he has a limited amount of time. I'm gone tomorrow, so I'm going to be encouraging you today, preaching at you today. And he preaches, and he preaches, and he preaches. And they sat, and they listened, and they listened, and they listened. They were going to break bread at some point, but he just keeps preaching. The communion is coming after the message. When is it going to be over? When are we going to get there? It just keeps going and going. It says he prolonged his speech until midnight. So let's, let's just practice a little bit of what we're preaching right now, shall we? Again, I have no idea if you find that funny or not. I, I do, but... I wish you were here so I could see you face-to-face and be encouraged by you, even though you're probably laughing at me. Yeah, right. We're not going to sit until midnight for you. Paul was a way better preacher. I wish I could hear you laughing at me. But soon and very soon. The text says he preached till midnight. Verse 8, there were many lamps in the upper room. Again, it's late. It's dark. They want to be able to see, so they light a whole bunch of lamps up. They get the lights going. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, Luke says, verse 9. And a young man named Eutychus, he's probably a slave. The name Eutychus means lucky. That's what his name literally means. 
And on this particular evening, he turns out to be not so lucky. Lucky is sitting at the window while Paul is preaching. And we understand from his name that he's probably a slave. That's a a slave type of name, which means he's probably got to get up and go to work early the next morning. And Paul just keeps preaching and preaching and preaching. There are lamps in the room. It's a warm room. He's sitting on the window seat or on the window ledge. He's tired. He's probably been at work all day that day. And eventually, even though he wants to hear what Paul is saying, he just can't hold out any longer. And the poor guy falls asleep, tips over backwards out of the window, and falls down and breaks his neck. That's what the text says. young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Now, Paul has been preaching for a long time. So long, in fact, that he has literally killed a man. You would think that this would be the end of the worship service. If one of you had a heart attack, I just want to reassure you this morning. If you're here and you're worshiping and you have a heart attack and we have to call the ambulance and take you out, even though you didn't necessarily die as a result of my preaching or you didn't have this medical complication necessarily because of something I was saying, I would still, just so you know, I would still pause the worship service. We would take care of you. And, and in all honesty, it's very hard to come back and keep the worship service going after an event like that. I would just send you on the way to the hospital We might come back. A few of us might pray. I want you to understand after something traumatic like this, it is not unreasonable for us to let that be the conclusion of the worship service. Paul preaches, Eutychus dies. Paul performs a miracle, one of four in Scripture to raise someone from the dead. We've got Elijah raising the widow's son. We've got Jesus raising all kinds of people from the dead. You've got Peter doing it with uh, Talitha, And you've got Paul now doing it with Eutychus. This shows clearly that Paul is in line with Christ. He is an apostle of Jesus preaching the apostolic truth of the cross. But that's not really the thrust of this passage. Luke mentions it only to emphasize something else. Paul runs down, verse 12, uh, sorry, verse 10. Paul went down, and he bent over him, Eutychus, and taking him in his arms, he said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. Now, I have not been given the gift of supernatural healing. I could never raise anyone from the dead. I don't even know what you say when you perform a miracle like that. When you baptize someone, you say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are prescriptions laid out for you in the Scriptures. I've often wondered, when you... When you're an apostle and you're working a miracle, like what, like what do you say in that moment? You know, in the name of the Son, the Father, the Holy Spirit, don't be dead, you know? Or what, what does he say then and there to get Eutychus to rise back up to life? He's not talking to Eutychus. He's talking to everyone else. He says, don't be alarmed, for his life is in him. Now, if you're working a miracle, Jesus spoke to Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth. He, he's, he's raised people from the dead, and he, every time he's done it, he said, arise. Or, you know, he's, Jesus time and again has spoken to the person who is dead, and he has spoken to them and spoken authoritatively in order to command them to rise back from the dead, to restore life to them. That's what we see Jesus doing. 
you'd think that's probably similar to what Paul would have done. You'd think Luke would say, and Paul spoke to Eutychus and said, Eutychus, in the name of Jesus, whatever, come alive. But yet that's not the focus of the passage. The focus of the passage is not that Paul healed Eutychus. The miracle is there, and it is great. Not, I mean, only four people in the whole Bible have been observed to perform a miracle on the line of resurrection, raising people from the dead. Paul is one of those guys. This is special. This is clearly supernatural. And yet, Luke does not tell us what Paul says to Eutychus because what is of more importance and more concern is what Paul says to everyone else. He encourages them. He comforts them. He strengthens them. The text tells us he goes down, he heals the kid, and yet his words are oriented, his words are directed to the church congregation. He says to them, do not be alarmed. Don't be afraid. Don't be gripped by fear. Don't be concerned. Don't be worried. His life is in him. It wasn't. This wasn't a case of mistaken diagnosis. He's dead. No, not really. He just bonked his head. Come on, man. No, he's dead. The scriptures, the text makes it clear. He is dead. Paul goes down. He heals him. Luke tells us nothing of what Paul says to Eutychus and everything of what Paul says to the church. And the worship service continues. It's midnight We've just seen a supernatural healing. We've just seen a miracle that only a handful of other people have done in the word of God. And Paul says we need more preaching. The text changes ever so slightly. Notice the wording. Verse 11. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread, so finally we get to eat dinner. Whew. I mean, Eutychus' death served at least one purpose, to remind Paul that all the rest of us hadn't had dinner yet. We need to eat. Let's get the communion thing going. They finally do. And yet, it says, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak. That's dawn. They went all through the night. Now, if they gather together like 6 or 7 o'clock at night, maybe right after the sun sets, and he preaches till midnight, you're looking at about five hours, give or take, of solid preaching. Woo, that's a lot of preaching. That's a lot of preaching. Now, I, I did a new members class a couple of Sundays ago, right after preaching the morning service. I probably preached or talked on Scripture for about five or seven hours straight, somewhere in there, from the morning all the way to the afternoon, and I was exhausted. Paul goes for five hours from 7 o'clock, give or take, all the way to midnight, performs a miracle, heals a guy, and he keeps on talking till dawn. But something has shifted here. If you're paying attention... The passage began with preaching with many words. He, he comforted them. He encouraged them with many words. Goes all throughout Macedonia, lots of worship services. He comforts, he encourages with many words. He brings guys that can be trusted to all these different churches. Come here to the Eutychus healing. As miraculous as that is, the focus is not on Eutychus. It's on the church and him preaching to them and them being encouraged. And notice what he says here. He says, verse 11, when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, look at this, he conversed with them. He conversed with them. 
Previous, it was clear that he's preaching. But now, there's a dialogue. He has proclaimed the word of God. He has set the truth before them. And now they're invited to share their heart in return. And he and they are going to go back and forth dialoguing. What this church needs to be encouraged is to have their perception of what they think is true challenged and for what is actually true to be presented and proclaimed. And all of this needs to be done within the context of a gathering, within a group of people who have come together to worship the Lord together in a church worship service so that having had the word proclaimed to them, they can talk about it face-to-face, man-to-man, and encourage each other. Notice how the passage concludes. They took the youth away alive, and they were not a little comforted or encouraged or strengthened. This last week, Dr. Bonnie Henry on Thursday, and I promise you this sermon, this sermon was written before she gave her announcement on Thursday. I believe in the sovereignty and the providence of God to orchestrate all events for the glory of his name. I wasn't entirely sure how to apply the passage to us until Dr. Bonnie Henry spoke and gave her announcement on Thursday. She said during the course of her remarks that worship services were very good, that faith services were very essential. She touched very briefly on the fact that without faith, people would lose hope that they would be discouraged. She said that. And that's when my ears began to perk up. Oh, okay, like what's she going to say about encouragement? She says, people need to be encouraged and we need to deliver those faith services through uh, the camera, Zoom, streaming options. And she continued to emphasize those things. She said, they will be encouraged that way. We do not need to have people coming together and gathering together. A little later on, as she was taking questions from reporters, there was a reporter who I assume was East Indian based on the accent, who mentioned in her question going to temples, going to gurdwaras, because the focus was on uh, Sikhism and, and that whole thing. I assume it was an East Indian reporter, journalist. And the assumption, the premise of the question was, what do you say to people who are now no longer allowed to go to temples? And Dr. Bonnie Henry responded again and said, no, 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 I didn't say don't go to temples. She said, we need to go to temples. We need to go to these, quote, holy places to be strengthened, to be encouraged. We just should not do it together. We should do it individually. First Baptist Church, where is our temple? Where is our holy place? How are we encouraged? I don't fault Dr. Bonnie Henry for not understanding the truth of Christianity or what it is that Jesus Christ has called us to. She's probably not a Christian for all I know. But when we listen to the government officials, we're tempted to think that they are speaking words of wisdom. And the problem is that when we start to lean on their words of wisdom, we start to depart from the true word of wisdom. We think we will be encouraged by following what the government tells us to do, but in actual fact, we are only going to be further broken 
unless we listen to the word of God. I have already shared with you all of the statistics from the CDC. I fully agree. I fully agree. We need to take steps to protect those who are elderly, the seniors, 75 and up especially. This is a real threat to their health and their lives. I do not fault seniors choosing to stay at home, especially when they know they have compromised immune systems. But to think for one second that we can be encouraged without seeing each other face to face is a lie. To think that we can draw strength to face these dark days without looking each other eye to eye, face to face, in the same room together is a lie. It's a lie. And that lie is told in a world from a perspective that says that there's nothing extra special about being together, that your living is more important than your gathering, that you simply breathing and having the capacity to go on is the most important thing. And yet we know from Christ dying on the cross, him giving his life to atone for our sins, that the most important thing in God's eyes was in order for his people to be reunited, to be gathered together to him he was ready to die jesus died on the cross to gather us together so we can never buy into the lie that is hawked on the television day after day after day that the most important thing for us at all costs at the expense of everything else is that we simply don't die i never want people to come to church thinking that this activity, this worship service could lead to their death. I'm sure Eutychus didn't go to church that day thinking it would kill him. And I would hate for anyone ever to live in fear of the fact that when they come to church, they might die. We've seen clearly the numbers on COVID-19. This is not a threat to younger people. We should absolutely take the precautions for the seniors. But understand that if you come to church to worship, even though you might contract COVID-19, you're almost guaranteed, younger crowd, not to die from it. Not a guarantee, but the likelihood is very, very small. I'd hate for anyone to ever wake up and come to church fearing for their lives. I do not want you to be afraid for your life when you come to worship the Lord. But the greater tragedy, the greater tragedy, is that people come to church without really being made alive. The greater tragedy than coming to church and being afraid that you might die for it is coming to church perfunctorily, as a habit, as a routine, even as a protest against the government, and believing that you're just coming here to do your duty, to stick up for your rights or whatever that might mean and to come with a focus on anything or everything else and not have a focus on Jesus Christ, to come to church not fearing that you're going to die necessarily, but coming to church not confidently expecting that you will be made alive. I hate that so often in our worship services when we gather together, it is very much just the routine. This is what we do. We wake up on a Sunday. We go to church. We ought to wake up looking to be strengthened. We ought to wake up looking to be encouraged, to be made bolder in our faith. We ought to wake up looking to be comforted 
Spirit, it is a result of whatever the difficulty was from that last week. We come looking to be saved. That Christ saves us and that we hear his word set forth. And then we take that word, we look to each other after the worship service, and we encourage each other with that word, using words, persuading and elevating and lifting everybody's gaze to look at Christ in heaven. This is what he died for. And this is what we're called to do. Strengthen our faith in Jesus. Strengthen each other's faith in Jesus. Lift each other up and encourage each other. There's no way around it. This is what we are called to do. And this is what we need to do. In Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews writing to Jews who are facing incredible persecution for the fact that they were Christians and walking with the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 to 25, the author says, let us consider, that is, let us think of this about, let's think about this, let's ponder this, how do we do this? Let us consider how to stir up one another to love, that is, to a greater love, and to more and more good works. Not, look at this, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, strengthening one another, comforting one another. Let us encourage one another and all the more. That is, be doing this more and more and more as you see the day drawing near. That's what the Word of God tells us to do. That's what Paul and his companions are doing. That's what we need to be doing. I think that once this whole pandemic is behind us, once they have the vaccine and all the therapeutics and everything, and this is not a serious concern anymore, one of the things we need to get into the spiritual habit of doing here at First Baptist Church, we have the time of worship, we have time in the Word, we need to have an hour of fellowship that follows, where we go friend to friend, face to face, we grab some coffee, we grab some donuts or pastry, whatever, over in the fireside room. And we say, hey, I know, I've been praying for you this last week. This is how you were looking. This is what your situation was. Here's what God's word says. It has to be true. It has to be right if it's to be encouraging. But it is powerful when it comes following the word being preached when brothers and sisters converse and dialogue together. If Paul could preach from 6, 7 o'clock in the evening till dawn the next morning, we can take an hour and a half to worship and hear the word here then we can take another hour afterwards. Maybe we'll include a meal. I don't know. Who knows when we'll be able to do that. But we need to take time to say to each other face to face, be encouraged, and here's how, here's why, here's the truth, here's the word. We need that. We need that. Preaching to the church. I was thinking about it. I went to this conference years ago. And this guy said, I bet you can't think of five sermons off the top of your head that really moved your life. No, in the five seconds he gave me in the course of that message, I couldn't. But when I went home with my journal 
and I started to think about it, I can remember lots of sermons that rocked my world. I can remember lots of preachers, some of whom I don't even know what their names were, different conferences, different worship gatherings, in which God used them as they preached the word to completely transform my whole outlook. I remember a sermon that Dr. David Allen preached on Ecclesiastes, The Vanity of Life. The thoughts and the encouragement that he brought to me in that sermon makes up much of my own sermon today on that, on that book of Ecclesiastes. I can remember when I was sitting in chapel at DBU with my dear sister and friend, Kyla Gleason, 15, 17 years ago now. And Dr. Henry Blackaby came in, a Canadian, and he preached at that chapel service. And he made an interesting statement, and he said, and I don't even remember what the text was. He was preaching on some passage of Scripture. He says, understand this, Paul did ministry with a team of other people. And even now, in this room, some of you are going to pair up together as partners in ministry, and you'll be doing ministry the rest of your life. I thought, ha, you're right. And just two seats over, Kyla Gleason was sitting there hearing that same sermon. And here we are 17 years later. She's probably ready to be rid of me, but it ain't happening. I can't think in the moment when I'm put on the spot of five sermons that have really impacted my life. But when I think about it, I can think of hundreds of sermons that impacted my life. This last week at men's Bible study, Nolan Pasteur shared a sermon on fasting that I had preached over a year ago. We were talking about fasting in the men's Bible study, and he quoted like 10, 15 minutes worth of my sermon from a year ago. And he was looking at me, he was like, right? That's what you said, right? And I was like, you remember more of that sermon than I do. Dustin Patterson chipped in and started contributing. I mean, I don't even remember what day I preached that sermon, to be honest with you. I could go back and look on the calendar. I have no idea. And impacted those men. As I look at their lives and as I look at my life, you know what I've realized? The sermons that were most impactful were the ones that I ended up talking to someone about right afterwards. I was encouraged by their continuing affirmation of that truth. And you should be encouraged as well. The Puritans believed in the Word, they believed in the worship gathering. They believed in the church and the power to strengthen faith that comes through the gathering. Richard Sibbs, great Puritan preacher, once wrote, the preaching of the word among the brothers and the sisters of a gathered church is the chariot that carries Christ up and down the whole length and breadth of the world. The preaching of God's word in the gathering of the church is the chariot that carries Christ up and down the world. What a powerful picture. May it be true of us here at First Baptist. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray for a quick and speedy relief to these injunctions against us. We thank you for the timeliness of your word, Lord. Father, everyone knows I just have been preaching through the book of Acts, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and it was no accident that I should come to this particular passage on the preaching of your word and the encouragement of the saints in fellowship and dialogue with each other. It was no accident that this sermon should come on this day. 
I pray, Lord, that for our brothers and sisters who are at home, who are afraid, that they would seek to be encouraged and an encouragement to each other. Lord, I pray that as we reflect on this text and as we look at the world around us, that we would not be driven to fear or despair, but that we would know and be reminded that you anticipated all these things long ago, and yet you still spoke in your word for God's people to be strengthened and encouraged through gathering and dialoguing all from the word of God. Do it in our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.